Hello and welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I am Peter Djokovic, a historian at the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre Australia. The Cold War was a period of rivalry that developed after World War II between the United States and the Soviet Union and their respective allies. The Cold War was waged on political, economic, military and propaganda fronts. In this episode, we will examine the Cold War at sea as it involved Australia. To discuss the Cold War at sea, I am joined by three men who actually took part in either surface ships, maritime patrol aircraft or in submarines. They are Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who was a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. During the Cold War, he was an anti-submarine warfare specialist and served in both Royal Navy and Royal Australian Navy ships. He went on in the post-Cold War period to twice command the frigate Sydney, the Multinational Maritime Interception Force in the Arabian Gulf and Australian Maritime Border Command. Air Commodore Ian Pearson, who joined the Royal Australian Air Force in 1976. After navigator training, he spent a large part of his career flying P-3 maritime patrol aircraft during the Cold War. He's written a book, Cold War Warriors, Royal Australian Air Force P-3 Orion Operations, 1968 to 1991, which will be published in 2021. And joining us by phone is Commodore Kim Pitt, an experienced submariner. As a junior officer, he trained with the Royal Navy and served on loan in British submarines operating from Scotland and Northern Ireland. He also served on exchange with the Royal Canadian Navy. In the RAN, he commanded the Oberon-class submarines Onslow and Orion, as well as the submarine squadron. So first off, to set the scene, James Goldrick, can you tell us why there was a Cold War? It was a mix of ideological factors, but also of existential concerns, particularly on the part of the Soviet Union, which at the end of World War II uh, was determined that it would never be attacked again in the way it had by the Germans. And of course that meant that it took an attitude to Eastern Europe, which spilled over into concerns that what would that mean for Western Europe. Um, so what you had was an element of ideology in that globally there was also the Soviet Union encouraging uh, communist uh, movements, which of course came in China in 1949 and then um, had already happened in North Vietnam and North Korea. And it was a competition that had the spectre of global war and nuclear war, but also the sense that one side would end up winning eventually and both sides had to both deter each other and manage the competition both in terms of minor conflicts around the world potential for major conflict and also how you cooperate. So it was a curious um, cold war is not a bad explanation but it was also cold coexistence at the same time. So you had this element of potential conflict but also realising that people all did have a common welfare. It's a good explanation of a very complex sort of period in history. Ian Pearson, why was the seas a place of geopolitical competition between the US and the USSR? Well, let, let me give a little bit of historical context before I get into that answer. Um, the Soviet Navy um, uh, went from being a, a defensive Navy in World War II uh, without access to um, um, 
warm water ports. Um, its major surface units, for example, didn't fight a single action in World War II. Um, the Soviet Navy had supported amphibious operations uh, in inland waterways behind the enemy lines and on the flanks. Uh, but it was really its large submarine fleet that did see action uh, in, in Norway, north of Norway and um, in the Arctic. Um, but it was largely confined by the Baltic, um, by the Germans and Finnish blockade action. Come the end of World War II, a uh, number of things changed. First of all, the Soviet Navy had a large number of uh, captive ships, uh, gained access to um, uh, new ports in uh, the Baltic and uh, satellite states and um, into the east, Korea and so on. Um, the satellite state ports were used to build trawler ships for the Soviet fleet and the Soviets started to pursue a uh, policy of total and integrated use of the sea. So every, every vessel flying the Soviet flag, whether it be a warship, fishing trawler or oceanographic uh, uh, research vessel, uh, was uh, centrally controlled. Um, so fishing trawlers, for example, uh, might simply be fishing, but uh, also they could be gathering intelligence uh, against uh, a NATO exercise or even one of our exercises, as we saw, or um, gathered in large numbers in places like the uh, Straits of Juan de Fuca between Washington State and British Columbia. They could be putting a lot of noise into the water to mask the activities of their submarines, Soviet submarines that are operating there. So from after World War II, all of these developments, particularly after the passing of Stalin, who had um, probably harboured suspicions about the uh, Soviet Navy since the Kronstadt uh, rebellion against the Bolsheviks by the Navy 1921, uh, led to the... Um, Soviet Navy as a collective national force becoming increasingly part of a broader national strategy. Uh, from immediately after World War II, as I alluded to earlier on, the um, Soviet submarine was what presented the largest threat to the Western Allies and uh, from 1949 to, to the NATO Allies. Any protracted military action on land in Europe would require resupply for the Western Allies from uh, North America and this is where the Soviet Navy, immediately at least, represented a threat. At this time the, uh, the Navy, was a, uh, the submarine fleet at least, was about uh, 300 hulls, although um, a lot of those were, were quite old. Uh, but uh, their sheer numbers and the threat that they posed gave rise to, to uh, in the West, the development of uh, anti-submarine warfare skills and, uh, in, in both the Navy and uh, the Air Force or the Air Arms of the Navy. And uh, they, in turn, I guess, led to the development of aircraft like the P-3 Orion that we're familiar with now and the British Nimrod that came into being in 1962 and 1969, respectively. I know we're going to talk about uh, the reforms uh, that Admiral Gorshkov um, brought into play, but um, with what he did and, and go, Soviet government direction, there was a clear uh, political and economic agenda uh, from the 1950s onwards, as well as a military reason for Soviet activity, including strategic mobility, um, and commercial fishing and uh, trawlers were integrated into the broader national operations. 
And by way of example, the uh, Soviet Union went um, into the 1960s with the 11th largest uh, merchant fishing fleet in the world, a uh, bigger pardon, merchant fleet in the world. Uh, by 1965, the Soviet Union had the sixth largest merchant fleet. Uh, with that, uh, the Soviet Union needed a way to protect its uh, maritime fleet and uh, that fleet at the time also was displacing uh, Western uh, flagged vessels from the merchant trade and also the Soviets were gaining increasing influence in a number of international ports. Okay, thank you, Ian. Um, Kim Pitt, uh, can you tell us what the uh, main geographic rub points were in the Indo-Pacific? Well, the Soviets had their bases and support facilities in the northwest of the Pacific, uh, around the Sea of the Kosk, north of Japan, um, places like Vladivostok and Petropavlovsk. And my friends in the United States Navy always refer to their trips across there as going off to Westpac. Uh, later in the Cold War, they developed facilities in Cameron Bay in Vietnam after the Vietnam War had concluded. And <clears throat> they also established a semi-permanent presence in the Indian Ocean. Um, they didn't have any ocean ports or facilities in the Indian Ocean, so they established anchorage off the east coast of Africa. The Indian Ocean was pretty busy, if I remember, and we in the submarine community even believed that the uh, Soviets were transiting submarines down the east coast of Australia, across the uh, Great Australian Bight, access and depart from the Indian Ocean. Um, the Americans, because they had all their facilities on the uh, western seaboard of the United States and in Hawaii, uh, but they also had forward support facilities uh, in the Pacific, in Guam, the Costa in Japan, Subic Bay in the Philippines, and they too operated in the Indian Ocean. I think they had a carrier battle group in the Indian Ocean throughout most of the Cold War. Uh, and they had facilities at Diego Garcia to support those, uh, those ships. And I'm remi reminded also that it's a fairly lengthy period, this goes from the 50s through to about 1990-91, during which time the Chinese, the Koreans, the Vietnamese, the Indonesians and in India uh, variously worked with the Soviets or used their equipment and took their support and arrangements in to train and therefore they became places for uh, this rubbing you refer to to occur. Uh, sometimes it was cold, on occasions it was warm and on occasions quite hot. Um, two events to demonstrate that last statement. I'm reminded of the Pueblo incident of 1968 when the Americans were operating a little intelligence gathering a type ship off the Korean coast and they were attacked by North Korean vessels. The ship was taken into custody. In fact, he's still held to this day. And another semi-hot incident, which uh, I've heard referred to recently, as we've discussed, the, the sad demise of the Indonesian submarine Angala was the loss of the diesel submarine that the Soviets had operating to the north of Hawaii in 1968, I think it was. The K129. She was lost with all hands from, we think, an onboard incident. But uh, cheekily, in 1974, the Americans decided to recover her, and the CIA mounted an amazing plot and successfully recovered some parts of her, I think, in, in order to recover missile heads and torpedo heads, which they believed to be nuclear capable. 
Um, meanwhile, in Australia, we certainly sent our ships and submarines throughout the region, and um, uh, the, the rub points that you, you speak of, I think I've listed them all on a little note I've got in my desk here, the North Pacific, the South Pacific, the Korean Peninsula, the South China Sea, the Indonesian Archipelago, the Philippines, the Southern Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the sea lines of communication. In fact, anywhere that a Navy gathered for an exercise or business, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, down our own coastline, I think. Yeah, thanks, Kim. There's some interesting, uh, interesting events there, and certainly I know the Pueblo is uh, still used as a, a tourist attraction in, in North Korea today. So, indeed. interesting story she's still there. In yes, that's right. Yes, she is indeed. Um, now, as Ian touched on a little bit earlier, one of the central issues in the Cold War was uh, the rise of the Soviet Navy. Uh, James Goldrick, the architect of this rise, was Admiral of the Fleet Sergei Gorshkov. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and what his underlying strategy was? Uh, he was um, a very distinguished uh, officer in World War II in combat, as uh, Ian's mentioned, um, particularly that role of amphibious operations in support of the Army in the Black Sea. Uh, he became the commander-in-chief after Admiral Kuznetsov had been fired, um, largely by uh, Khrushchev's intent to have the Soviet Navy shift from any big ship focus to a submarine force to a missile uh, force that was for the defence of the Soviet Union. He remained commander-in-chief for something like 30 years. Um, He published a book in the 1970s which really epitomised his approach, but also indicated just how much progress the Soviet Union had made in maritime terms, called the sea power of the state in its English translation. And it's really a blueprint for an ocean's policy. That's the striking thing about it. It's, it's the sort of thing Ian was talking about, the integration of all these elements, uh, merchant, fishing, scientific, uh, naval, into um, the Soviet Union being able to exploit the world ocean and the world ocean is a term he constantly uses in the CPAR state, and apparently it's a correct translation, um, with this idea that the Soviet Union could benefit economically, could defend itself, could also uh, basically meet the imperialists on their own terms. Um, and it's a, it's a strikingly comprehensive look at how you use CPAR in the sense of it being more than a navy. Um, Now, what he's doing is trying to overcome continentalist um, outlook um, of a Soviet Union that is paranoid, that's all about defence of the motherland, and he's saying it's much more than that. Uh, It's obviously an argument for a strong navy, and of course he was very good, I think, at getting money for the Soviet Union's navy, Uh, but it is also very compelling with a Marxist-Leninist foundation, and that's important. It's a compelling description of sea power and how a state can actually use all its elements. Certainly an interesting guy and a remarkable career. Uh, Ian Pearson, can you give us a sense of the, about the qualitative and the quantitative growth of the Soviet surf- surface fleet? Yeah, well, that started probably from 1949 when they, uh, the Soviets commissioned um, the first of 14's Ferdlov uh, light cruisers. Um, and... 27 destroyers or Kotlin-class destroyers started coming online in 1956. But from then on, uh, there were enhancements offered by technology and and firepower that resulted in larger vessels. For example, the Kotlins that I just mentioned 
Uh, 11 of those were uh, retrofitted uh, as dedicated ASW destroyers and uh, nine of them were retrofitted to be uh, surface-to-air missile launchers. So the Soviet Navy was going from a gunship navy to a missile-equipped navy. In the 60s and 70s, we saw them being complemented by uh, the more powerful, larger Cresta and Kara cruisers, and there were a combined total of 21 of those. And um, such developments as the Kashin-class destroyer that came online in 1960s at the time was the world's largest uh, gas turbine-powered naval combatant. Uh, the Soviet Navy then went on uh, in the late 60s to acquire two helicopter cruisers. They weren't quite aircraft uh, carriers, uh, the Moskvas, but uh, they did get aircraft uh, carriers from 1977 with the introduction of the Kiev class. And the first of those was seen in our uh, area of operations in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, there was the Minsk in, in, in June 1979. Um, arguably, uh, the, the peak of uh, Soviet Navy might was the uh, Kirov-class cruiser that uh, came into being in, uh, or was, came into service, I should say, in 1981. Uh, they were nuclear-powered. There were four of them. At uh, 250 metres long and 28,000 tonnes uh, displacement, fully loaded, um, apart from uh, assault ships and aircraft carriers, they were the largest uh, surface combatant uh, warships in operation in the world and they probably influenced the reintroduction in the United States Navy of the Iowa class uh, battleships in the 1980s. Uh, second of those vessels, the, the Frunz was seen in, uh, in our area of operations in, in um, 1985 uh, when it, it went through from the uh, Indian Ocean through the Bay of Bengal uh, it was tracked by P3s uh, down the Malacca Straits and into the South China Sea, t 2,500 miles uh, journey. And uh, HMAS Canberra from the Royal Australian Navy was also involved in that surveillance. And then, of course, in the 1980s, we saw the introduction of um, 19 uh, absolute state-of-the-art uh, uh, Sovereignty class uh, destroyers, 15 Eudeloid destroyers and three Slava cruisers. So by any measure at this time, the Soviet Navy was a force to be reckoned with. Thanks, Ian. And uh, Kim, are you able to talk a bit there, a little bit about their submarine fleet? I think my story mirrors Ian's commentary. Uh, at the start, <clears throat> the, the Soviets were busy building hundreds of diesel submarines. Uh, they started with a plan for 236 Whiskey and 25 Zulu classes. These are basically models or derivatives of the old German 521 U-boats uh, that were coming online at the end of World War II. Um, but by the time Gorshkov had taken charge, and I think if I'm correct, he's reported to have had on his desk a sign which basically said, better is the enemy of good enough. They changed pace and direction quite dramatically. Um, and over the rest of the Cold War, they introduced more than 25 classes of submarines. Um, 300 diesel boats, 90 uh, nuclear-powered attack submarines. They, they included submarines which were designed specifically to take out carrier battle groups. Uh, so they built 80 cruise missile firing boats. And, of course, the ballistic missile firing submarines, I think there were 125 
felt during that period. Um, I don't think the United States or the United States and Britain combined could match the pace of construction that the Soviets kept up. Um, but around the bars, the submariners frequented in this uh, interesting globe of ours. We would frequently say we were nervous about the numbers, but at least we had the edge in terms of performance. Our, our capabilities were ahead of theirs. We held that view through until the mid-70s and maybe maybe for some to the late 70s, but things had started to change in the uh, the world of uh, submarining. And we started to lose contact with them on occasions, or not even detect them in the first place. Then um, through the 80s, we saw some pretty fantastic submarines come online. The uh, Victor 3s were amazing, but <clears throat> they were left behind by the Aculas and, uh, and all that followed. So... For a while there, we wondered what was going on, but it now appears, or we now know, that through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, a group you know of as the Walker Brothers, or Walker and Whitfords, had been selling United States codes, crypto material, even crypto machines to the Soviets. For 17 years, they'd been giving this stuff away, <clears throat> and the Soviets had been able to read all of our traffic. Um, Two major things happened in terms of submarine performance for the Soviets. Firstly, they learned about the SOSIS chain, the underwater sensors that were uh, used by the West to monitor transit routes. The Soviets realised that they were being monitored and they turned the SOSIS chain to their advantage. So if Vladimir would go across a SOSIS chain sensor, he would wait until the report went from the SOSIS chain to head office saying, Vladimir's gone across, he's putting out this much noise at this frequency. Vladimir would take note of that when he read the traffic, which he was able to get because of the crypto material he received from the walkers, give it to the scientists and the engineers and fix up the boat when it got to harbour. The next time she went to sea, she'd go over the same sensor and they'd monitor the traffic talking about what was being put into the water and fix it. So for a period of about five to ten years, they made modest improvements to each submarine. They were using the SOSIS chain as their own noise range system. But they also learned about how the West operated. And they changed their style of operations. They changed their shape of boat. They changed the stealth techniques. And hence the Acula came on scene, surprisingly, with a tremendous step forward in terms of capability. And in short, by 1991, at the end of the Cold War, U.S. submarine, USSR submarine force uh, was nearing parity in terms of qualitative performance at sea. Quite a horrific story from my part. But mirrors my time at sea. I went to sea in '68. Stopped going to sea in '86. The walkers were working all the way through that time, reading all my traffic. Rat bags. <laughs> uh, it's certainly one of the most interesting aspects, I think, of, of the Cold War. Um, thanks, Kim. Uh, James. Less appreciated was the Soviet Naval Air Force. Uh, was this a major threat? Uh, it was certainly intended to be a major threat to the Americans, uh, to their carrier battle groups, and any potential for the carrier battle groups to strike at the Soviet homeland. And indeed, the, um, the surface force and the submarine force we've already talked about and the Naval Air Force are all components of the Soviet system which is designed to protect the Soviet Union. And, of course, another important component... Uh, which must be mentioned, is their ocean surveillance system. Uh, the satellites, uh, which uh, had radar, 
or uh, the ability to pick up um, electromagnetic um, uh, signatures and so on, uh, to give them cueing to indicate where the carrier battle groups were. The Soviet Naval Air Force was uh, formed around regiments of uh, bombers uh, under the NATO uh, codes of um, Badger and then Backfire, uh, B for bomber and two syllables for being jet aircraft, uh, which were supported by long-range reconnaissance aircraft, which were bears, uh, which were propeller-driven. And the bears would take up uh, the... in would go and uh, locate and uh, fix... Uh, the position of an American carrier battle group based on the information they had from the remote sensors uh, up in the space. And then they would um, basically guide the regiment on to uh, preparing for a mass attack on the American carrier battle group. And if the Soviets, uh, in many circumstances, would try to tie that in with cruise missile attacks from submarines uh, and also... If it was close enough to the homeland, they expected surface ships to be firing missiles as well. And the idea was to fire as many missiles as possible to overwhelm the defences of the uh, battle group. I've witnessed myself one full simulated attack by a Soviet regiment uh, in the Baltic. Um, there were more than 30 um, Badger and Backfire bombers um, simulating this attack against us. Uh, the most a concentrating thing was when they all switched on uh, not just their own targeting radars that each uh, aircraft had, but they switched on the radars, the missiles, um, which they didn't have to launch to do so. So we had something like 60 missile signatures. Um, and the point is that each missile carried a 1,000 kilogram warhead if it was conventional, and there was always the possibility that a missile could be a nuclear weapon. Yes, that would be a rather disconcerting experience, I'm it sure. Was. <laughs> uh, so we've now covered the geopolitics and the challenge posed by the Soviet Navy. So we'll move on to how it was counted. Ian Pearson, what was the broad strategy by the maritime forces of the US and her NATO allies and other allies like Australia? The Cold War stressed um, the importance of an era which Mahan had not developed at all, and that is the political use of sea power in peacetime. So if you like a policy of containment through presence and surveillance rather than destroying or uh, neutralising the enemy. Um, with the growing might of the uh, Soviet service navy that uh, we've been speaking about, uh, new American naval thinking began to take shape. Uh, also by this time the, uh, the US Navy had been engaged for a number of years in rebuilding its own forces to replace the block obsolescence of the uh, US Navy fleet. By the mid-1970s, which followed a pretty chaotic decade for the United States uh, with the Vietnam War years and uh, that decade between the assassination of Kennedy and uh, Nixon's resignation in 74, there was opportunity for a wide revival of uh, general strategic, th strategic thinking. Uh, in many areas of the US armed forces as well as in the academic world. US naval strategic thinking started to focus on such areas as what to control, for what purpose, to what degree, uh, when to initiate control, how long to control, and in general how long to uh, control in order to achieve the strategic objective. And the need for this was highlighted uh, uh, in 1971 when um, 
uh, during the India-Pakistan War when um, the arrival in the Bay of Bengal of Soviet Navy battle group led to the withdrawal from the area, not just by a US Navy uh, task force, but also a Royal Navy task force that had been uh, deployed to, uh, to the uh, Arabian Sea. Part of the strategic thinking in the 1970s was Sea Plan 2000. And that was a plan uh, the US Navy Secretariat completed during the Carter administration in March 1978. It pointed out uh, main policy-related measures that the US Navy supported, and they included uh, maintaining stability through forward deployments, containing crisis with the uh, ability to affect outcomes ashore and by having superiority at sea against the Soviet Navy and deterring global war by the ability to protect sea lanes, reinforce allies and exert pressure upon the Soviets. So uh, if the time for implementing those measures wasn't quite right during Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, it certainly was when Ronald Reagan came to office in 1981, particularly when uh, people started to take account of the lessons that were learned from the Soviet in Af uh, invasion of Afghanistan in December 1979 and how well the West was or was not prepared for that. Thanks, Ian. Um, Kim, um, can you uh, uh, tell us how did the Allied submarines, uh, including the Australian Oberon-class submarines, contribute to the strategy to contain uh, Soviet naval activities? Well, submariners are always a little bit myopic, uh, Peter, but um, I'm reminded that the Soviet and NATO strategy was one of mutually assured destruction. <clears throat> and in terms of submarine operations, in big picture terms, that meant that the job at sea was pretty straightforward for a submariner. If you're a ballistic missile submarine, don't get detected and be ready to launch your missiles at any time. Whereas for a nuclear-powered attack boat, even a diesel conventional-powered attack boat, the task was find the enemy. If you can track them, trail them. Be ready to sink them before they can fire their missiles back at us. So globally, uh, the navies of the world search for located tracked opposition submarines relentlessly um, and focused our attention 24 hours a day, no matter where we were. In addition to that, submarines of the West were required to keep their eye open on all other activities. So there was a general surveillance program which we ran. And that worked through the 70s into the 80s. And I think, and this is probably a, a gossip level statement, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be denied, denied by the, the Americans. In the 80s, they took on a much more aggressive role. You heard Ian's comments about Reagan and the, uh, the pressure being applied. That happened underwater as well. And uh, a submarine that got into a position where it was able to track or trail a Soviet submarine was required at some stage during that activity to put themselves into an attack position and simulate an attack on the enemy submarine that they were, they were following. It was fairly aggressive stuff. Um, now, to put it into context for Australia, this sort of stuff at sea was pretty risky, uh, hazardous, and in reality, 
most of it beyond the capability of our dear old diesel-powered Oberon-class submarines. Um, we certainly had the ability to, to locate other submarines, but in terms of tracking and trailing them, it just wasn't possible. We, we were limited because of the battery, and we can follow it perhaps for half an hour to an hour, but that was this, and that's not much use at all. But there were many other surveillance activities which were of value to the community at large, which the Oberon-class submarines could contribute to. Um, and anything that we did that relieved the tasking pressure on other more capable submarines was, I think I could just say it was very much appreciated. Um, I think we helped a great deal. Uh, we completed operations that otherwise might have been given to an SSN and detracted it from the bigger task. Uh, we played to our strengths. And you know, I think in, in doing that, we were able to rattle the Soviets in the bigger picture. And I suggest that their withdrawal from mainstream operations with their ballistic missile firing submarines in the open ocean behind the uh, the bastions of the Sea of the Kosk is a demonstration that we were on the game. We followed Reagan's requirements in many ways. We harassed them. We wouldn't step down if they came back at us. And uh, we would count ourselves, I think, to be fairly effective little players in the game. Yeah, I certainly understand that we certainly a respected uh, uh, force in spite of some operational limitations, as you touched on. Um, James Goldrick, a feature of this period was large multinational and multi-service exercises. Can you comment on them and their level of sophistication? I would say it was a steadily growing level of sophistication. If you look at the records, the initial exercises in the late 1940s, uh, despite the uh, legacy of World War II with the cooperation between the Allied navies, uh, some of the uh, problems were really horrendous in trying to get people to talk to each other. But into the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, the exercises get more substantial and more sophisticated. And what's happening as well is that there is a development of Allied doctrine so that there are common operating procedures, common standards for material, common weaponry, um, which although Australia was not part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation uh, due to our other links with the United States and with the United Kingdom, we were very much um, had access to that as well. Uh, so that really, you're, by the 60s, uh, there's a settled pattern of very sophisticated exercises. Um, the Rim of the Pacific exercises start um, at the beginning of the 1970s, and of course those have continued since. And what you can see is that this, it's just building continually on interoperability and uh, the experience of working together. And that extends, um, it's not only a naval thing, it's a maritime air thing, big time, um, and to some extent it's, it's an army thing as well. Um, but also the exercises themselves could often be indications of political intent. Where an exercise was done and what it focused on um, could be a signal as well uh, of what was a concern and what message you were giving to the Soviets. Now, the Soviets themselves had their OCEAN series every five years, which were global naval and maritime exercises, and they were a message to the West about increasing Soviet capability, increasing sophistication. Um, so it was both mechanisms to have greater training and greater efficiency, but they were also signalling mechanisms as well. Right. Thanks, James. Uh, Ian Pearson, um, RAAF maritime 
patrol aircraft conducted many sorties in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, can you give us a bit of a sense of a typical patrol? Uh, Peter, uh, probably the best known of these patrols are the uh, Operation Gateway patrols flying out of the Royal Malaysian Air Force Base in Butterworth, Malaysia. Um, they they started uh, in February 1981 and in fact continue to this day as the longest continuously run ADF operation. Uh, the purpose of these patrols was to uh, essentially to compile a surface picture of the search area um, and gather intelligence of vessels of interest. Um, fortunately, the requirement to gather photographic intelligence uh, led to most of these sorties being conducted during daylight hours. So we'd uh, take off uh, typically at 8 o'clock. You can almost set your watch by that for a routine patrol and we'd land about 10 hours later, um, ideally before the thunderstorms arrived that were a feature of the weather of that area. So the uh, patrols would take us out into the Indian Ocean uh, to a start point roughly south of Sri Lanka or out into the South China Sea and would work our way back from there. Um, otherwise, we might be uh, tasked to do specific routes, but that was the, the general picture. We'd fly along uh, below the cloud base, normally around uh, 5,000 feet. Uh, that gave us a good radar horizon. The tactical coordinator would uh, direct the aircraft around to uh, the various radar contacts and um, they would be visually identified from a distance where there was a contact that was of interest would send uh, to gather uh, intelligence and, and that would be, uh, as I mentioned, the photographs. Uh, we'd drop sonar boys to get uh, acoustic intelligence, we'd gather electronic intelligence and we'd have the uh, infrared detection system running to get video. Uh, and the, the sort of contacts that would investigate would be typically communist block shipping um, and um, Certainly during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, we'd, we'd also uh, have a lot of interest in um, the victims of that war that had been taken out by um, Exocet missiles and, and mines. Um, when, when tasked to do so, we also uh, investigated targets like transiting Soviet submarines that were going through the gateway area of operations into uh, uh, the Arabian Sea. Um, They'd be round the round the clock operations, unlike the uh, the uh, civilized daylight operations for routine ops. Uh, when the Soviet submarines came through, they'd be uh, accompanied by at least one escort vessel that was there to uh, put noise in the water to uh, mask the acoustic signature of the submarine, particularly when it's submerged, and also uh, complicate the surface picture at night. And they would uh, typically um, transit up when they were heading towards the Indian Ocean, up to the, uh, the northern tip of Sumatra. And uh, around 2am in the morning or thereabouts, certainly at the darkest part of the night and when our biorhythms were at their lowest, they would submerge and then the chase was on. That's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, one aspect of the period was a close relationship between the Navy and the Air Force with defence scientists and defence industry. And this is exemplified by the development and introduction of a number of new systems. So Kim Pitt, um, an early Australian Naval History podcast talked about the submarine weapons upgrade or what's called the swap to the Oberons. Can you briefly comment on, uh, on the upgrade program in the context of the Cold War? Certainly. Um, look, when we bought the submarines, the Oberons, they were a good boat, proven, but they had a few 
even uh, archaic elements to them which needed to be sorted out during their lifetime. The first four boats were delivered between 1966 and 1970. The final two were delivered in 77 and 78. Um, the first modification we made was in 74. It was to fit a passive ranging sonar to, uh, to ovens when she was in refit. And it worked brilliantly. Uh, I was the XO of the boat when she came out and we switched it on wondering what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, we could see the target, not only in terms of its bearing and its movement, but we had a position in space. We got the range as well. Uh, that really boosted confidence that we moved directly into the remainder of what was known as the Submarine Weapons Update Program, SWAP. Um, the, the SWAP was, was wonderful. I'll, I'll bore you with just a little bit of detail. Um, we put in a new attack sonar and a new long-range sonar, and these were digital systems rather than analogue. That meant we could move to a more sophisticated fire control system way of determining what the targets were doing and how to put a weapon on top of them. We introduced a thing we called the Sonar Fire Control System, SFCS, and that was world-leading, really a stunning, stunning event. That allowed us to put on board the United States Navy's Mark 48 torpedo, a very long-range, sophisticated anti-surface ship and anti-submarine weapon. And also the UGM-84 sub launched Harpoon missile. Um, surprisingly, this all worked fairly well. We were able to prove it on ranges overseas. And one of the great uh, benefits of the program was that we formed a very, very strong bond and relationship with the scientific community in Australia, DSTO and RAN Research Laboratories. So much so that later on, we kept up with this uh, upgrade program and process, and we brought in even more beneficial systems, better EW kit and um, more sophisticated sonar systems, including thin line toad arrays, which were unknown of elsewhere. Um, the scientists all had mess numbers. Uh, the, the blokes on the gate knew them by the first name. They were in and out day and night, working side by side with the operators. Uh, if we had a problem at sea, we could send a communication back to the Submarine Warfare System Centre, which had been set up in Watson, where the developers, the engineers, and the scientists would come together and find a solution, dispatch an answer to us so we could get it sorted within a day or two. It was pretty clever stuff. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the relationship we shared with the scientists and the scientific community. And I do keep my fingers crossed it's still going on to this day. Because looking back in terms of the Cold War, uh, at the start, a, a commanding officer wanted to conduct an attack. We had to get within about a thousand yards, really put your, yourself in a dodgy position to be effective. At the end, we could stand off over the horizon, put multiple missiles on target, take them out if that didn't work with a back-breaking Mark 48 torpedo. Really, really giant step. Wonderful. I think at times we might have lagged behind what was happening at other parts of the world with the Soviets. But overall, we generally played in that big league at the front of the envelope, and I think we kept pace. Uh, we, we were able to maintain a level of uh, fit-for-purpose capability 
because of the work of Australia's scientific community. Yeah, it's a, it's a great Australian success story, I think. Thank you. Uh, James Coldrick, similarly, can uh, you can you talk about the uh, the ICARA missile and the Maloka uh, sonar systems? Yes, well, one is an enormous success and reflects the sort of uh, culture that Kim has been talking about. The other uh, was well-meant, but turned out not to be the right path. The ICARA was, and now we're in an era of unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, was almost ahead of its time. It was a radio-guided rocket uh, which carried a torpedo out to be dropped um, at the correct dropping point uh, based on the sonar information of a ship that was, uh, or indeed a helicopter, that was tracking a submarine. And the big point about it was because the uh, it was radio-guided and its targeting was being uh, updated all the time, uh, it was and remains by a factor of 100%. Uh, the British did a study um, of ICARA by comparison with other ship-launched or ship-delivered um, anti-submarine systems, the most effective delivery system. Um, we took it to sea in 1963. It was Australian-developed, although there was both British uh, assistance and money and American money. Um, in HMS Stewart, the trials were completed uh, very successfully and it was then fitted generally to the remaining of units of the River class and then to the Charles of Adams class DDGs and it remained in service until 1991. It also operated in a moderated, uh, modified form in the Royal Navy and indeed in the Brazilian Navy under the term Brannock. Um, the tragedy was that Initially, it reflected exactly the same sort of cooperation and indeed Australian um, innovation that Kim is talking about, uh, but we didn't continue it. Uh, we did uh, move from analogue to digital. Um, we did install a uh, make it compatible with a data link. In other words, a helicopter could be transmitting data uh, to the ICARA firing ship and the ICARA ship could fire on the helicopter's um, information. So the ship didn't have to hold contact. But what we didn't do was keep updating it. It was a big, bulky system. Um, it could have, and there were plans to develop what was called boxed ICARA. Um, if we continued um, putting money into it and updating it, I think not only would we have had a con still effective um, delivery system, and of course it's the weapon it carries that is really important, um, but also something that I think could have been sold. Maloka was an attempt to deal with, diff with really difficult oceanographic conditions that are around Australia, uh, but it was flawed in that it was a high-frequency sonar. High-frequency physically cannot go very far underwater and return an echo. And as Kim's talking about, the submarine attack ranges were moving out so far that to have a sonar that wasn't capable of meeting... Uh, the range in any way uh, was a mistake. And I think although there was a great deal of well-meant effort, we should not have put money into Maloka. We should have continued with ICARA. So, Ian, uh, can you tell us some, a little bit about the Barra Sono Boy? Uh, Peter, um, to give it its designator, the SSQ-801 Barra Sono Boy. It's uh, an air-launched, expendable, passive directional Sono Boy, and that was... Uh, co-developed by Australia and the United Kingdom and uh, it became operational in 1980. Essentially it consists of a, a buoyant canister, it's about a metre long and 10 centimetres in diameter and that houses a radio transmitter, 
uh, joined by cable to the sensor array. So after hitting the water, the floating canister releases the uh, sensor package uh, that remains joined to the um, radio transmitters or it descends to the uh, predetermined depth. So when it deploys, the sensor array has five arms. They open up like uh, the arms of a starfish. Each of those arms has uh, five equally spaced hydrophones. Uh, Barra is very capable at detecting submarines through um, the analysis of broadband sound, but its strength is as a directional sonar boy for fixing the position of the submarine. And the information that allows us to do that is detected by the hydrophones. It's transmitted to, uh, by the boy's transmitter to the aircraft onboard processing and ultimately for display as bearing lines on the screens of the aircraft. These uh, boys are uh, quite a bit more expensive than the, uh, the other boys that do essentially the same thing. These the SSQ-41 low-far boy that's non-directional, just a passive boy. SSQ-53 American DIFAR uh, passive sonar boy, but the unit cost of these um, has come down significantly, I understand, since they uh, entered service. When, when, the, when they did enter service in 1980, they were individually hand-built, um, and their cost was, uh, we were so we were told, was comparable to that of the Holden Kingswood, which was the, the family car, a right? mainstream family car in Australia at the time. So each time we dropped one of these barrel boys, we had images of yet another family car going out the back of the aircraft. Thanks, Ian. Uh, it was during the Cold War that the RAN and the RAAF attained considerable expertise in anti-submarine warfare. I might ask each of you to comment in turn on the level of training in that regard uh, that you received in your respective field. Um, starting with you, Kim Pitt. Yes. Uh, look, when we ordered the Oberon class submarine, we received the offer from the Royal Navy to have our officers and sailors trained while those boats were being constructed. And therefore, when the submarines were delivered, they were populated by crews that had been working with the Royal Navy at sea for probably, in many cases, six to seven years. They came experienced. They understood what the Cold War was, what the operations were like, and all that went with it. When the submarines arrived in Australia, effectively they were ASW capable, ready to go. They just needed to be plugged in. Of course... Australia didn't have a lot of familiarity with the operations of submarines or how to use them. Australia was very busy in terms of support to the Vietnam conflict, and therefore there was a hiatus of sorts. Um, let me just tell... Well, I'll use a terrible analogy. I have a very bad reputation for this. The old spear-chucking regime. When you throw a spear, in terms of submarine operations, the tip of the spear, I relate to the hull, the submarine. But the shaft of the spear, that which gets the tip of the spear to where it needs to be, is made up of everything from the operational headquarters, the planners, the intelligence system supporting it, the command and control arrangements, all of the interactions that go on globally to allow the submarine to get to where it needs to be. Now, in Australia, we hadn't quite perfected that. There's a lot of good intention, but it wasn't quite there. So through the 70s, I think there was this hiatus of... Uh, slow approach to uh, submarine operations to the use of submarines in anti-submarine warfare as well. However, at the same time, over in the United Kingdom, there were two ships' companies preparing to pick up the final two of the submarines that were being uh, delivered from Scotland. 
And they were, again, training with the Royal Navy. They were, again, being taught the latest in terms of what was happening to counter the Soviet threat at sea, in the Atlantic, of course. And they came back to Australia fully primed with the latest information. The lads here in Neutral Bay were not doing uh, knitting courses. They were actually trying to do their best as well. And I've, I always struggle trying to talk about this stuff in terms of classification. So I've done a bit of a search and found some reports of proceedings in 1977, HMAS Onslow got the Cup, so I figured they must have been a submariner who could spell. Uh, and uh, Not a bad bloke to refer to. Onslow's reports of proceedings of 1977, which are available online, tell, tell you what the submarines were doing in terms of training and readiness to make sure that they were ready to go. And it also shows a sign of some sort of uh, frustration, I think, on behalf of the CO that they weren't being used aggressively enough. After that, as two of the final boats returned and the fleet got better at managing the submarines and the intelligence community got better at fusing intelligence into the picture, the capability rose and our training levels improved. So that by the mid-80s, I suspect you could probably boast that we were performing adequately. Um, and we did that through until the end of the Cold War. Um, I think that by being involved in the Cold War, we maintain an operational level of capability and an edge, which we wouldn't have done otherwise. But for me, the things which really helped us get through that period and, and deliver a good result and keep the edge was the fusion of Australia's intelligence community sources into a picture within the headquarters. And I, I have to admit that back at the time when I argued that the submarine operations cell should not move from neutral bay across to fleet headquarters, I was wrong. The smartest move that the, the fleet did was to drag the submarine operators into the, the bosom of the family and we started to work together and that made a real difference. Thanks, Kim. Uh, James Goldrick. Um, I think the answer is on several levels. In a purely tactical sense in relation to the submarine threat and the capability at the time, I think the surface fleet probably was around the late 60s, early 70s, at its relatively most AS anti-submarine warfare proficient um, and practised and having access to the targets. And also, up to that stage, we also were sending ships uh, to operate with the British Eastern, Far Eastern Fleet, um, and that kept standards up. After that, I think it was trickier and other things intervened. Uh, and, of course, the submarine... Uh, what the Oberons could do epitomised it with the submarine warfare up update program is the submarine threat changed and submarines could attack from so much further away that the problem became even more difficult than it ha had been and I'm never quite sure how well we were meeting that. The second point is that I think the surface fleet in particular maintained its warfare proficiency uh, very substantially by the very substantial exchange program we had with the British. And that's not because the British are brilliant or in any sense. It's the point that we were putting people into a much more demanding operational environment than around Australia. And all of them were getting significant experience in operations at the forefront of the surface fleet's part in the Cold War. Um, and then we're bringing that back to Australia. So more on an individual basis than the collective uh, that Kim's talking about of the experience of the submarine um, crews, who, by the way... Uh, help Britain maintain its um, 
NATO commitment at the time when the British were shifting to nuclear submarines, the Australians and Canadians were manning the diesel boats which were committed to NATO. And without the Australians and Canadians, the British would not have been able to do that. So this help business works in two directions. But I think it was well that... Well said, that man. <laughs> it was that um, continual leavening of people coming back every couple of years. Now, we were not good at formally extracting the experience from people and applying it to the fleet, but you had this leavening of all practically all warfare officers had this sort of much more intense operational experience, and I think that, that helped keep our efficiency at a greater level than it would have been otherwise. Thanks, James. Uh, Ian Pearson. Uh, Peter, the first point I make, I think is a very important one, is that for the P3 community, uh, much of our training at the theoretical level was conducted jointly with our Navy counterparts. And that happened at the uh, initially, in the earlier days at least, the Australian Joint Anti-Submarine School at uh, Naval Air Station Nowra and the Australian Joint Maritime Warfare Centre at HMAS Watson in Sydney. So for years we have been working together in our training and operationally. Back back at Edinburgh at our base in South Australia, um, Obviously, we had our classroom and uh, aircraft conversion courses to make us proficient at uh, what we did on our various stations in the aircraft. We rehearsed those tactics in the simulator and uh, offshore, off, off the coast of South Australia in tactical exercises uh, around Australian waters with Australian submarines, uh, both um, uh, the Obron and, and Collins in more recent times, and also uh, out of Guam, Hawaii and San Francisco with um, US Navy submarines. Uh, something we also used to do but haven't done for more than 10 years is, is we had the annual Fincastle Trophy Competition which was conducted uh, with the uh, Maritime Air Forces of Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the UK. That, if you like, was the finishing school in anti-submarine warfare. Um, clearly our highest training priority, uh, which sadly, as I say, hasn't happened for over 10 years. But um, to pick up a point that's been made earlier on uh, uh, by, by Kim, um, perhaps our most cost-effective and certainly our most realistic training was uh, provided uh, gratuitously, if you like, uh, by the Soviet submarines that were transiting area of operations. Um, and also uh, when we operated against those submarines or Soviet submarines off the coast of um, North America, uh, um, uh, so I mentioned the, the um, attack submarines in the uh, Straits to Juan de Fuca before, but um, um, sitting on top of um, a Delta III submarine uh, uh, armed with uh, perhaps uh, 16 ballistic nuclear uh, missiles, each with new, uh, multiple um, warheads, brings with it a certain gravitas uh, that tended to bring out the best performances of our crew, by far the best training we had. Thanks to the Cold War. I could imagine that would be a, a very focusing sort of experience, yes. Uh, so to conclude this episode, I'd like to ask each of the panel for their final thoughts on the legacy of the Cold War at sea, uh, starting once again with Kim Pitt. We learned lessons that we knew of before, but they were reinforced. The need to be able to travel long distances. The patrol areas were a long way away. We had to be able to operate independently. We needed to be able to do things while we were there without that... Uh, Bunnings shop backup system that we were familiar with in Patapus. And we, we just had to be able to survive on our own. 
And putting that together, I, I'm thinking of war fighting skills. I, I think that the Cold War legacy was the realisation that technology hadn't changed the world, that the ability to do things at sea in a war fighting manner requires solid training and commitment, and you must train in peace as you wish to fight in war. Yeah, it's a very good point. Thanks, Kim. Um, James Goldrick. I'd really take up directly from Kim is that the Cold War has a legacy, one which I think we'd forgotten until the resurgence of geostrategic competition in the present day, uh, of the requirement to be able to operate at different levels, to be ready to operate at the highest level, as uh, Ian noted, you know, with the gravitas of dealing with um, ballistic missile submarines, um, but also that the warfighting skills you have, will, if the better you are at the warfighting skills, also the greater chance you have of achieving deterrence and managing the situation and remaining in a situation of competition and, one hopes, cooperation um, at the same time. And I think we'd somehow forgotten that in the post-Cold War environment. Uh, we're now, I think, remembering uh, the need to be able to maintain the very highest standards and why you have to have the very highest standards, uh, particularly in your war fighting skills. Thank you, James. And uh, Ian Pearson. Um, since it hasn't been mentioned before, I think it's fair to say that we won the Cold War. Um, but uh, I guess on a more serious note, I, I, I'd make what on the face of it stands, sounds like a statement of the bleeding obvious, and that is that the Australian Defence Force of today is very much a joint force. But having said that, uh, for some it's only come as a recent revelation. Um, on the other hand, for Air Force members who have been involved in maritime air operations and, those, uh, and, and for the Navy who have worked uh, with them, we, we grew up with training for and conducting joint operations and have been doing so for many, many years. And I'm pleased to say that continues to this day. Indeed. Thank you, Ian. Yeah. Uh, sadly, that's all we have time for. So my thanks to Kim Pitt, James Goldrick and Ian Pearson. Uh, this podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre Australia, the Australian Naval Institute the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you liked this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.